Put that coffee down. Coffee's for closers only. Hello, and welcome to Coffee with Closers, a podcast featuring a team of public relations professionals at Pinkston in Washington, D.C. From media personalities to pioneers in healthcare and disruptors in business, we talk with some of America's most interesting people who tell interesting stories. So grab a cup of coffee and let's get started. This is Coffee with Closers. Joining us today on Coffee with Closers is former naval aviator and former Southwest Airlines captain Buzz Collins. As the airline industry continues to grapple with significant turbulence stemming from a shortage of pilots, Buzz shares his thoughts on this crisis and what can be done to make the airlines more attractive to aspiring aviators. He also recounts his final flight at Southwest and the memorable send-off he received from some 175 passengers on board, including more than 60 family and friends, all thanks to his wife Dee Dee's creative planning. The son of a naval officer, Collins spent 20 years in the Navy, where he flew the P-3 Orion and served as a catapult officer on the aircraft carrier USS Enterprise. During that time, he also appeared very briefly in the 1990 blockbuster, The Hunt for Red October, and Raggedy Man starring Sissy Spacek. After a successful military career, he joined Southwest, where he worked for 20 years before retiring back on February 16th of this year. And when he wasn't in the cockpit, Collins could be found playing in his family band or driving the custom hot rod car he built in his garage. Buzz Collins is a closer. All right, Buzz Collins, welcome to Coffee with Closers. How are you doing today? I am doing well, thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. I heard you just got back from a great vacation. So how was that? It was awesome. It was the longest vacation my wife and I have ever taken. It was three weeks long in Europe. It was the first week was in Italy. And uh, the second uh, second part of that was a sailing ship cruise in the Aegean Sea, visiting Greece and Turkey, and it was it was just awesome. Oh, that's wonderful. That's great. Well, um, well, good to hear, and glad you're back and rested and and retired as well, right? So, congratulations. Yeah. Um, well, Buzz, thanks thanks for joining us today. First, obviously, I want to thank you for your service to our country uh, in the Navy. Obviously, uh, everyone here at Coffee with Closers is, and everyone at Pinkston is appreciative of your of your service and, and our country as well. Um, I just want to start. Let's just start with uh, you know your former airline pilot, and I want to get to a little bit of the news of the day. Um, Five thousand flights were canceled over Memorial Day weekend. The latest news that I've been reading is that thousands more will be uh, canceled over the summer. Uh, we had one regional carrier CEO recently told uh, in the press said we never fathomed attrition levels like this. Um, from your vantage point, uh, do, do we have a crisis? How serious is the problem, and and could it have been avoided? We we have a crisis. We had a huge crisis. We're coming out of it now. Yep. We've got other issues, uh, but yeah, this was a big deal. This was uh, first of all uh, to answer the question: Could it have been avoided? I don't think so. I think this was so unprecedented and so weird that uh, nobody, you know, nobody saw it coming. Yep. So short answer is no. I don't think it could have been avoided. Yep. And uh, when it did first uh, rear its ugly head, you know, most people thought it was just going to be a hic- hiccup. Yep. And not that big a deal, and things just kept started, kept getting worse and worse and worse. And uh, it's been not only a blow to the airlines, but a blow to you know most most industries and and unlike a lot of industries where you know you can mitigate some of it by having your workers go online and doing zoom calls and stuff like that that's not an option for for airlines and and hotel workers and cruise ships and those kinds of service Mm -hmm. industries so you know the the airlines have had to weather uh, all kinds of things over the years i mean we we had to weather 9-11 we had to weather uh you know, fuel prices that, that fluctuate. And uh, just before COVID, we had to weather the, the problem with the MAX 8 aircraft, yep. which uh, was a big deal for Southwest because Southwest was the airline that had that flew the most of those. Mm-hmm. And so when you take uh, 35 of those out of service, that's that's kind of a crisis. Yep. And we were just coming out of that when, when COVID hit. So, uh, you know, the the... the leadership in the airlines was scrambling to try to 
to uh, to mitigate the problems that were happening, and uh, they were offering incentives to the workforce, and that's not just pilots; that's flight attendants, that's uh, people in the in the uh, general office, that's people in the training center. Uh, they they had too many people. Their their highest um, or th- their biggest expense is with labor yep. and fuel. So they needed to get people out of there. And so they offered incentives for us to uh, either take a sabbatical for up to five years, a paid sabbatical where they were paying wow. uh, somewhere around 50% of Ooh. salary just to stay home. Wow. And then for other guys that were close to retirement, they were incentivizing us to retire early and they would pay those guys 60 or 65% of their salary to stay home. Mm. And, uh, I considered doing that, but I decided in the long run that I, I, I'd rather stay around. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been huge and it's been, uh, yeah, now that things have turned around and, and, and there's, there's more of a demand for, uh, air travel, uh, you can't just turn this stuff back on like a light switch. Yeah. yeah. You know, it takes, it takes a while to, uh, first of all, recall all those people. Well, the retirees didn't get recalled. Once they retired, they were done. But the sabbatical people, they all got re- recalled. None of them, a lot of them didn't get the, the time off that they wanted. Some of them wanted five years off. They got recalled before that when they, when they realized there was a shortage. Right, right. And, um, and uh, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> Oh yeah, no worries. Well, no, that's good. there's our that's at least our first edit right there. Yeah, there you go. Uh, yeah, but uh, but once you get all these people coming back, you know, now you've you've got a training center that's got all these training personnel that have also gone out, and so you you, you can't you can't manage that kind of a wave of people coming back in and, and have it have it go you know quickly. It's it right. takes time to turn this stuff back on. So. Uh, yeah, it's been it's been a, a real a real problem, huge and, problem. And real quick, did this problem start during COVID? Was COVID the genesis for this, or was or was it was it maybe were there storms brewing much quick, sooner than that before that? No, it was COVID. It, it was COVID. COVID. Things were yeah. things were going pretty good, with the exception of the Max for uh, two airlines, Southwest and American had the other uh, the most of the other Max aircraft. Yeah, and, and that that was kind of a big deal. Got uh, it. But uh, yeah, you, you go from one small crisis into a huge crisis, yeah. and uh, yeah, it's, it costs the airline billions of dollars. Yeah, yeah, a lot of losses. So, yeah. so the next question, the next logical question, in this is, um, you know, where, where, do, what's the solution? I've heard everything from raising the retirement age from sixty-five to sixty-seven, reducing flight hour requirements, lowering barriers to entry, recruiting recruiting pilots from other countries. I mean, it runs the gamut here. Um, how, you know, what are your thoughts on how they get out of this mess? Well, you know, you mentioned lots of things, and some of those things are being tried right now in terms of you know raising the retirement age uh, from sixty-five to sixty-seven. Uh, on, on the one hand, that that could be an easy easy fix, and that's yep. just the stroke of a pen, and it's done. Yep. Uh, it was done in two thousand seven when I first got hired by the airline. The retirement age was 60. Okay. And uh, that's when, when I got hired, that's when I thought I was going to be done at age 60. And then I think it was in 2007 under the Bush administration, the second Bush administration, uh, it just got raised for uh, two more years up to, uh, I'm sorry, five years from 60 to 65. And, uh, you know, it's unclear to me what kind of support that would get from the airlines. Uh, not that that would have much of a say so in it one way or the other, but I can tell you uh, whenever people are talking about raising the retirement age, the younger guys, uh, generally speaking, the older guys are for it and the younger guys are against it. Because when you're in, a, in, a, in the airlines, everything is based on seniority. Your, yep. your schedule is based on seniority, your pay is based on seniority. And if you've got old guys that are just hanging around even for another couple of years, it's going to, it's going to keep you from moving up. So the, the younger guys never want it. Yeah. Uh, and then there's pension issues, right? Doesn't that create uh, p- pension issues for the airlines themselves or no? 
Well, it didn't at Southwest because we don't have a defined benefit type of a pension. Our, our pension was, you know, it was more generally it was a, a profit sharing and a 401k that they would put money into. So, you know, once we retire, we're completely cut off from, you know, we, we walk away with, with basically a, a bag of money and that's that's our pension. That's your pension. Got it. OK, yeah. got it. Um, I know one um, of the. Oh, go ahead. Finish well, your thought. I, I, there was t- a couple other points. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, you mentioned uh, getting pilots from other countries. Well, yeah. you know, we we already do that. We we've been doing that for years. Oh wow. Uh, the problem with that is um, those guys have to have all their U.S. ratings. You know, their their uh, licenses overseas don't do them any good here. Yep. So it, the onus is really on them to do that. A lot of them want to do that. And a lot of them want to come here, but the problem is. Uh, I don't know that there's a an overabundance of those guys available. Right yeah. Now. Okay. Uh, in terms of reducing flight hour requirements, um, I think that that would be a, a tough sell because uh, when they did when they raised the flight uh, hour requirements, that was back in 2010, and it was the result of a of an aircraft accident that happened up in Buffalo. Yeah, the Colgan Air airline. Yeah, Colgan. I'm sorry. That was cold yeah, in air, cold. right? Yeah. Correct. And uh, so they, they made a bunch of, of changes after that happened. One of them was, you know, they made it tougher to be an airline pilot because you needed more experience and more flight hours. And they also changed some work rules, some crew rest requirements and things like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's actually had, in terms of safety, it's had a really positive effect. And, and you know, the airlines have been... Have not had have only had one fatality since that happened in the U.S. And so, uh, you know, a lot of people are going to look at that and say, you know, what we did was a good thing, and it, you know, we're we're safer now than we ever have been. So I don't know that that would that would fly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I think what we can do, uh, you know, there, there's also a problem of, of of not not as many people wanting to be airline pilots. And, uh, you know, when I got hired, it was it was hard to get hired by an airline. It, it's always been it's a supply and demand thing. And there's always been uh, more more pilots than, uh, you know, than there were jobs mm-hmm. for this kind of thing. And that's generally the way it's been. And now it's just just the opposite. So, you know, I think that uh, uh, the airlines could make it more attractive uh, for people that are thinking of, of doing this career. Uh, and I think they have done some of this, but like, for example, when I got hired your first year, you're on probation and you're, you're getting paid. Not, not much <laughs> that first year. They really kind of take advantage of new guys. And that, and I've never thought that was right. So I think that that should just be done away with. Now I know that, uh, they've really improved on that and it's not as bad as it used to be, but I think it should just go away altogether. You're talking about probation. Uh, you're talking about the probation period. Yeah. The probation I mean, it's okay to have a probation period, but I think that you should you should pay. It's the probation pay that I have an issue with. Got it. Because the, okay. the pay is just a fraction of what you get even in your second year. And, okay. you know, it's, it's tough. You know, it's tough to do that. It, most guys that go into this have spent a considerable amount of money to get called to do it. Yeah. And yeah. even the military guys, um, you, you come out of the military with a lot of good flight hours that help you get qualified but then you have to get your civilian ratings, which the military doesn't give you. You have to pay for that out of pocket. Yep. So to go from the military uh, where you're making a pretty, pretty decent salary and then have to take a big pay cut uh, for no for no good reason to be a first year airline pilot is uh, I just don't think it's a good idea. So attractive pay uh, is attractive pay is key. Yeah. 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 Anything else that you think would help with the runway there? Mm, I think that's about it. Yeah. Do do movies like Top Gun Maverick will that will that spur the 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 new wave of? Well, it it <laughs> did last time. I <laughs> uh, uh, think things are you know for that when I say last time the first the first Top Gun that came out in I think the eighties, yeah. uh, there was a huge uh, you know influx of you know people that wanted to be pilots. Yeah. Um, uh, I I, uh, I haven't seen the new Top Gun. I'm gonna actually going to go after this this uh, after we record this. My wife and I have tickets to go see the new Top Gun, so oh, we're really uh, looking forward to that. Uh, good, good. Yeah, I'm hoping to see it soon but, too. So, 
but one of the issues is that the military, you know, is not as big as it was when I was in, and uh, they're not making as many pilots as they used to, uh, at least airplane flying pilots. You know, they're making more drone pilots now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's uh, I think, I think a few years ago, it used to be that the military guys made up the, the majority of the folks coming into the airlines. And a few years ago, that changed. And it was really more guys that just had civilian time that were coming in. You know, the other issue is after having gone through a pandemic and seeing what it did to the economy and to the job market, there's a lot of military guys that may not want to leave the military to do this. You know, they yeah. might want to be have that safety net of, of just staying in for a few more years. Yeah, no, that's interesting. So real quick, just as we take the look, look back at the crisis and everything going on and hiring of pilots and pay, do you see any impact in terms of sort of airline viability, the prospect for future mergers? I feel like we're kind of done with the mergers, but maybe not. I don't know. I feel like we've got as, we've got as bad as mergered out as we can. Um, but and, and, you know, like this, is there going to be an impact on the passenger experience? I mean, um, I just curious just your thoughts on just some of the more maybe more broader impacts that maybe we're not seeing. Well, uh I mean, yeah, we, we are definitely seeing an impact right now. I, you know, I just got back from Europe and uh, the, uh, the price of the tickets is very high. Yep. The, uh, the schedule is reduced. The, uh, there was a lot of cancellations, delays, yep. and the customer service, uh, there's a noticeable drop in customer service. If you get on the telephone and you have an issue with your ticket, uh, my experience has been you're going to be on the phone a very long time before anybody picks up. Yeah, yeah. And uh, sometimes it's just easier just to go to the airport ticket counter and get it get it worked out in face to face person. Yeah. Um. So uh, yeah, with a pilot shortage right now, you know those things are going to keep happening, and it's going to be a while before. You know, the airlines are hiring right now. They've already hired a bunch of uh, new pilots, but. Um, there, the need is going to outstrip what's available there. So um, I have read that it's probably not going to stabilize for at least five years. Yeah. Uh, now, hopefully now, now what they're going to do is they're going to adjust schedules. They're going to, you'll, you'll see maybe not the frequencies that uh, to certain cities that you're used to. You're going to see high ticket prices, uh, those kinds of things. Um, but you know, it's it's very hard to it's very hard to predict uh, this kind of thing and when it's going to get better. Nobody really knows. I mean, there's always speculation, but it's frequently wrong. So yeah. you know, I, I throw that number out there five years. I I really have no idea. Yeah. Um, and, I, and in terms other, of mergers, go ahead. No, go, no, go ahead. Finish with your merger point. Yeah, mergers. Uh, we we had to go through. It probably wasn't called a merger. It was an acquisition. Um, but it was the combining of two airlines. So Southwest uh, acquired AirTran when I was flying there. Yep. And, you know, a merger isn't always a bad thing. Um, you know, there's going to be people that are not happy with it uh, because, you know, particularly the junior guys that are, you know, involved in a merger. Because when you're trying to combine a seniority list, you know, there's always going to be somebody that's not happy. They're going to they're gonna have a decrease in seniority or you know, what they were at their former airline and, and they're not going to be happy. But, you know, my experience has been that after some time goes by, you know, it's it, it was a good thing. My experience with Southwest and AirTran, it, it turned out to be a good thing. And from a passenger standpoint, it was for loyal Southwest uh, passengers, it was really good for them because, you know, we acquired all these uh, uh, near international flights that we, you know, we never went international prior to that. And after we acquired AirTran, we started going to Caribbean and, and Mexico and Central America and stuff like that. So, so that was that was a good thing. Yeah, that's good. And just real, real, before we move on on the passenger note, um, I think the other impact we're going to see with these grounding of planes is I assume that passengers aren't going to be able to go to some of these feeder cities like Des Moines, Iowa, or maybe you know some of these smaller cities, and they're going to probably have to find their own way from major hubs, right? I mean, that's. Yeah, uh, you know, the, uh, the feeder airlines uh, typically are, are operated by small companies, you know, that, you know, they get their aircraft painted up to look like the big airline. Oh, yeah. 
And uh, those guys have had a really hard time during COVID. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and, and eventually that translates into a hard time for the big airlines too, because that's where the big airlines get their pilots. Yep. The, it's a, the, the small airlines are a stepping stone to, to the majors. Got it. So, yeah, that wouldn't surprise me at all to see a lot of that stuff going away and, and maybe some of those airlines going out of business. I want to go back to passengers for a minute. Um, one of the things we've been seeing in the news over the last couple of years is incidents of unruly passengers opening doors, you know, intoxicated on planes, assaulting flight attendants. Now, I don't know if this is a really big problem or this is just isolated incidents that the news media likes to make into a big problem. But just from your 20 some years of flying, has the flying public, has the cabin, is the in-cabin experience, has it has it changed? Are there more are there more risks now for for the crew than than maybe we didn't have long, some time ago? Um. You know, that, that stuff all happens on a case-by-case basis. Yeah. Uh, my personal experience, I guess I've been fortunate. I've never really had to deal with anything too outrageous like that. And, you know, pilots rarely have to get involved anyway. They, yeah. they don't really want pilots getting involved in that kind of stuff, nope. uh, particularly in flight. Yeah. We're not allowed to get involved. We have to stay behind the closed door. So the flight attendants bear the brunt of that. Yeah. Um, but even that being said, the only incident I ever had, we were on the ground and there was an intoxicated woman that got on the flight. And you're not allowed to fly if you're intoxicated. We can't take you as a passenger. And so right. uh, we we just had to have her removed. Uh, yeah. But I, I, you know, from my perspective, it hasn't been that bad. But yes, I mean, I think that the whole mask thing and the, you know, the interactions with flight attendants, that's definitely... Uh, you never heard about that before, you know, we didn't have to wear masks before. So yeah, that the mask thing has caused more, 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 more issues. Yeah. Yeah. Now I know, I know you're, I know you're sort of con- your concentration was getting the plane to point A to point B, but I would just love to get your thoughts on this whole mask mandate. I mean, uh, you know, not to get political, but I mean, I know that the government is trying to, you know, overturn, you know, a court decision. I mean, I assume planes are very safe these days. I know they filtrate the air. The Omicron is on the decline, but I just love to get your thoughts just generally about where, where you come down on, on this, or is it really just individual choice of, of what the passenger wants? Okay. Well, I, I think that it's, I personally think it's time to get rid of the masks. I think we've been there for a while now. Yep. And, uh, and, you know, I just flew this last week and we, let's say we were going from Washington, D.C. to Rome and the U.S. did not have a requirement uh, last week to have anyone wear a mask, yeah. but Rome did. Yeah. So everybody on the flight had to wear a mask. And I was thinking, well, OK, when we get to the halfway point, let's have everyone put the mask on. No, we had to put it on from, you know, from Dulles on. Oh my and that was a little little bit annoying, but that was an Italian law. Once we got over there, uh, we took another flight into Athens, and no no mask required. And we took another flight from uh, Istanbul, Turkey, to Fra- Frankfurt, Germany, no mask re- required there. Oh. And when we came back to the U.S. from Frankfurt back to Dulles, no mask required. So I think a lot of this stuff is kind of in the rearview mirror now, and. Uh, I, I will let you in on a secret that most people probably don't know. Even during the height of the pandemic, pilots never wore masks behind the door. <laughs> it wasn't required. It was it was recommended. And everybody said, okay, Roger, that recommended, not required. We're not wearing it. That's interesting. And, yeah. So pilots did not have to wear masks behind the behind the cabin door. Behind the door. Now, as soon as we opened the door. Uh, and we got seen in public or if we were walking through the airport, we had to have it on. But I, nobody, nobody in those two years wore a mask. Nobody. Oh, that's interesting. Well, I, I yeah. flew, I just did my very first flight since COVID two weeks ago. It was Southwest. And it's funny, 85% of the plane was masked up anyway. So, I mean. Really? Okay. Yeah, but about, I, w- I would say a good a good percentage of that plane already had masks on. So really? yeah, people were just, okay. you know, just to, maybe it was, maybe it was just my flight. Um, all right. This is very interesting. So let's turn to your personal story. Now um, you were a Naval aviator for 20 years. Is that correct? 
um, yes. captain at Southwest Airlines. Um, so where where did this uh, where did your flying enthusiasm start? It probably started. It, well, it started in college, and it started because I didn't know what to do with my life. <laughs> I was I was a uh, I was a zoology major at University of Maryland, and I thought I wanted to be a marine biologist. Okay. And I found that uh, I really got tired of dissecting animals because it seemed like that's all I was doing. Yep. And I was kind of, you know, what, what do I do? I, this is not for me. I was going to class one day and this helicopter just came out of nowhere and just landed right in front of me. And uh, it was an army helicopter and it was a recruiting uh, stunt by the army to try to gin up some interest for for the Army Aviation Program. Oh, that's interesting. And, and it got me, man. I said, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. That's what I want to do. So I, I said, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but that's what I want to do. So I, I, I wow. hatched a scheme. I went back to my room and I, uh, I said, I'm going to change my major. I'm going to, I'm going to major in something that I can apply flying to. Yep. And, uh, and I'm going to learn how to fly and I'm going to do that. So I went through the, the catalog for all the majors and I found forestry and I, that was the closest thing I could find. And it was like, well, I think they probably use helicopters and forestry to fight fires or plant trees or do logging or do something. It sounded reasonable. Yep. And so I changed my major to forestry. Uh-huh. And, and Maryland had a, a program at the time. They didn't have forestry, but they had pre-forestry. So you took a couple of classes at Maryland and then you transferred to North Carolina State University. Right. And I uh, got a forestry degree there. So that's what I did. I transferred to NC State. I went down there and then I was, okay, now I got my my degree going here. I'm working my degree. Now I got to figure out how I'm going to get my flying lessons out of this. Yeah. And I, I thought, you know, the military is probably the best way to go. And I really wanted to be a Coast Guard pilot, but I couldn't figure out how to get in the Coast Guard. It's a, it's a short, it's a, a small service. And, you know, unless you know somebody to at least, you know, steer you in that direction, or unless you go to the Coast Guard Academy, mm-hmm. it's it's hard to find out. I had a hard time finding out how to do it. Oh, that's but awesome. the Navy had all the answers. The Navy was on campus one day, and my dad was a Naval officer, and, and they said, yeah, here's here's what you do. You have a guaranteed slot to go to flight training. If you sign the, the dotted line here, take the test. And yep. and that's what I did, and the rest rest was history. And what did you fly in the Navy? I flew P-3s. Okay. Which is, uh, is that the Orion? Anti-su- yes. Yeah. So right. it's an anti-submarine warfare plane. Yep. Uh, and, you know, it was, I, I just loved it. It was, uh, you know, getting to my first squadron and going to all these exotic places. I'd never been anywhere other than outside of the U.S. other than like Tijuana, Mexico. Wow, that's funny. And here I'm flying all over the Pacific, you know, um, basically with no adult supervision. Uh, it was... <laughs> It was great. And uh, the, the culmination of, of my naval career was I was uh, the commanding officer uh, kind of later in the career there, uh, commanding officer of a training squadron. So I got to teach the brand new guys coming in, Naval Academy grads, uh, ROTC oh, great. grads, uh, officer candidate school guys that had just come in the military, both uh, Navy and Marine Corps. Oh, interesting. And we, we had them for... Uh, uh, initial primary flight training. And uh, that's what I did. And that was kind of like a dream job. I just, I just loved it. I just loved, you know, speaking into the lives of those, those young guys. And one, one of the things that we did, uh, my wife and I, is we had all those students over to our house for brunch uh, as they would come through. So over the course of a year, that's upwards of 200 people. And I, I just wanted them to see what, you know, what life in the military was like outside of the pressure cooker of flight school, because flight school is, it's really not fun. It's, it's high pressure and you're studying all the time and every flight is an evaluation. Yep. So I just wanted them to be able to see a family, a husband and wife and a couple of kids and, and be able to see that, yeah, maybe this military thing uh, could be a great career. That's great. What, um, what aircraft carriers were you on? I was uh, I was on the USS Enterprise. Now the P three is a big aircraft, and it doesn't land on an aircraft carrier. Oh, I'm sorry. But, uh, oh, I thought it did. I'm sorry. My, my no. But I was on an aircraft carrier. Now in the uh, 
in, in the course of your career, the Navy wants you to go and do different things. And you have uh, what's called a disassociated sea tour. And that means disassociated from what you normally do. They want you, they want you to be well-rounded and get some experience doing you know stuff that other parts of the Navy do. So I became a catapult and arresting gear officer on the USS Enterprise. Oh, and, wow. Yeah. And so th- those are the guys. So I definitely got to see how those guys lived. You those know, are the I, guys I, with the, with the, 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 head, yeah. the earmuffs and the colored yeah, scheme like, thing. Yeah. yeah. That's a dangerous, exactly. that's a, that's a, that's a very high risk job, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, if you, you know, if you don't keep your wits about you, it can be. Yeah. And, yeah. and we had some, we had some, uh, some tragedies on that, on that carrier, uh, you know, it's even in training or even in peacetime, uh, it's a dangerous job. We lost in a two year tour, we lost 12 guys. Wow. For different reasons. You know, they weren't all aircraft accident relation, related. Some of them were, but, uh, you know, other, just other things, other weird things, guys falling overboard, and, yeah. you know, just stuff. And wasn't the USS Enterprise, wasn't that the, was that the ship in the first Top Gun? Was that the, was that the, um, or was that the sort of, I thought maybe. I think it, I think it was. Yeah. It, it was, it was in, it was in one of the Star Trek movies. Yeah. Okay. They're, they're, <laughs> they, they were looking for, I think they were looking for matter, matter, antimatter or something, and they needed to get into the nuclear reactor or something. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, I, yeah. I think it, I think the Enterprise was in the first Top Gun. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, when I, when I was on at the home base for it was Alameda, California. Okay. Interesting. And uh, yeah. And so we would routinely, if we weren't deployed, we would go down to Southern California, which is, you know, easy for the, the Hollywood people to come out to the ship and make, make movies. They, they actually made a movie when I was on the ship. It wasn't Top Gun. It was, it was after Top Gun. They made uh, one of the, uh, uh, shoot, Hunt for Red October. Okay. They had yeah. a, they had a scene for Hunt for Red October that they filmed on the carrier when I was there, and I'm actually in that movie. What? With some of my friends. Yeah. In the movie The Hunt for Red October. Yeah. No way. As like a you you well you, you have to know you have to know <laughs> you, who you would never know, you would never know it was me. You would have to be watching it with me, and you'd have to I say that to me. have I would have to have my finger on the pause button. You know, and go boom and pause it and say, here, see this guy with the helmet and the goggles and the yellow jacket? That's me. I oh. mean, you, you would never know it was me unless I was pointing out. Unless you're pointing out. Oh, my God. But I, pro- but I promise it is me. I'm not, you know. That's, so so do, you tell, do you tell family and friends I was in the movie The Hunt for Red October? I was in that movie, right? You're... Uh, I've told them that, you yeah, know. Absolutely. In fact, I had, I, had a, uh, I had a tour at the Pentagon. Uh, it was actually my last tour before I retired from the Navy. <laughs> and, uh, and we did a Buzz Collins movie day because I was in another movie too. I, oh. I was in, uh, well, what else this was all, I was in a uh, sissy SpaceX movie. It was called Raggedy Man. Oh my God. And, uh, it was when I was in uh, flight school in Corpus Christi, Texas, and the movie company needed a bunch of young, younger guys to be in, 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 in military uniforms, walking around this scene that they were filming of a carnival. Okay. And uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm in that too. So, so when we were at the, uh, we, you know, we were in the Pentagon and we had Buzz Movie Day. We showed both of those movies, and <laughs> oh, and I had my I had my thumb on the pause button so I could show my coworkers where 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 my big break was. Walk us through your final Southwest flight. I know it was earlier this year. Our mutual friend. Jim Trafficant sent me a picture, so I did see. Um, just walk us through that day. How you, you know what, what was going through your mind, where you went, um, and just kind of walk us through it. Okay, well, my last day was February sixteenth of this year. Yeah, I actually went out one month before my sixty fifth birthday. So you you have to retire when you turn sixty five. It's federal law. Yep. Uh, and I needed to go out a month early because my younger son was getting married and we had some other stuff going on and I just wanted to give, give myself a little bit more time there. Yep. So my wife, uh, Dee Dee wanted to make this really special f- for me. And, uh, she said, what, you know, what do you want to do? And at first I was, gee, I don't know, you know, and she says, well, where, where are your favorite destinations? I said, well, I always love to go, go to Florida, especially in the wintertime. Uh, get out of the cold weather here. So, you know, uh, Fort Lauderdale, uh, 
would be good. And, okay. You know, and, and the company is very accommodating. If you, you tell them what you want to do and they will, you know, arrange your schedule so that you can fly that flight when and, and, and wherever it goes. Yep. So I notified the company that I wanted my last flight to be February 16th from Baltimore to Fort Lauderdale. You got to choose the, the flight? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, so then we sent out, my wife did this amazing uh, invitation that if, if you, anybody that got this thing in the mail, you know, you, you just kind of had to, you had to be there. It was, it, it was a total fear of missing out moment. You, you could just tell from the, from the invite that this could not be missed. And was it an and invite it was, to say book the flight and get on this thing? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And we sent it out to, I don't know how many of them we sent out. I, I thought, you know, family and friends, I thought we might get 12 responses. We got 65 wow. or 67, something like that. Wow. And so everybody thought this was unique and cool and everything. So, so they all, they all showed up at the airport that morning and Didi had made goodie bags uh, for everyone. And the goodie bag had fun stuff in it. Like it had uh, custom made cookies and the cookies were in the shape of the airplane. And some of the oh. cookies looked like, oh like, my the gosh. Shoulder, like the shoulder boards, you know, pilots wear. And some of the cookies <sighs> looked like aviator sunglasses. And uh, everybody got a goodie bag. And, uh, you know, the interesting thing. So we had uh, we had a number of people on the flight that we invited, but the flight was full. It was 175. And so most of the people on the flight were not our friends. We had a good chunk that were, but they were getting into it. The people that didn't know, they were just surprised by this whole thing. And they thought it was, it was really cool. They wanted their photos with me and everything. Oh, it's your last flight. This is great. You know, so, I was getting the real, I was getting the rock star treatment on this thing. So just so I'm clear, yeah. the 175 passengers, sans yeah. the people that were your friends, they knew before the flight took off that this was your momentous moment here. They they found out because uh, there was just a lot of hubbub and activity and merriment at the gate. Okay, and you Got know it. I would walk up and people were taking photos with me. And it was, it was abnormal. It wasn't what you would normally see at, at a gate. Got it. Okay. And then, and I knew the gate agent, she was uh, a friend of mine uh, <laughs> that I had, that I had known for, you know, because I've flown out of Baltimore for 22 years. Yep. And she kind of told everybody what was going on. Okay. And uh, so by the time we pushed back, everybody knew. And, and I also did some announcements prior to pushing back and uh, just, you know, in case you didn't know, yes, this is my last flight. And I mentioned, you know, some of the folks that were on board and that kind of thing. And uh, so we, we pushed back and we're, uh, I guess we're about halfway down to Lauderdale. And I said, well, I'm going to go out and talk to the folks. You know, my last time I'm going to get on the PA system. So I, I left the, the cockpit and I, I went out and I just, just started chatting and talking about nothing, really. Talking about the weather, talking about what to expect when we land in Lauderdale. Yep. Because we're gonna we're gonna land in Lauderdale. There's gonna be two fire trucks that that come up on either side of the aircraft. They're gonna turn on their water cannons and they're gonna make an arch of water. And we're gonna taxi under this arch of water. I said it might be a photo op if you want to get your cameras out. And uh, it's kind of a salute they do, you know, to guys that retire. That's awesome. And uh, and then I said uh, I thought you know maybe I'll just open the, open the floor up to any questions you may have. And that, that's when it started getting funny and weird because uh, I, I got these questions. The first question I got was from a kid who wanted to know if I had any pets. Oh, that's funny. You know, I was like, uh, okay. So I answered that question. And then I got another just off the wall, non-aviation related question. And I don't even remember what it was, but it was like, you know, what's your favorite color or something like that. Yeah. And so I'm like, well, okay. One more question. My buddy, he raises his hand. And he says, sing us a song. Oh, gosh. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And I'm like, okay, I wasn't expecting that one either. But all right, I'll sing a song. But you're going to come up here and sing it with me. Oh, God. So he, he, he's a guy I knew in high school. And I had two other high school friends also on the flight. And we used to sing together in high school. We, we love the Beach Boys. We would try to sing those harmonies like the Beach Boys. And so the four of us were up there singing what do we sing? We sang 409 by the, by the Beach Boys okay. on the PA system. And uh, so that was, it was a lot of fun. And oh my gosh, so, that's cool. 
So I got back in the cockpit. We land there in, in Lauderdale. And then uh, that evening we had a reception in the hotel. And the next day we had, we had chartered a uh, boat uh, for a dinner cruise and a dinner cruise that went around the uh, intercoastal waterway. Okay. And, uh, you know, it was, it was great. It was, you know, dinner, dancing, fun, more singing. They had a piano on, on the, on the, uh, boat. Oh, I awesome. played a little bit of piano. So yeah, it was, it was just great. Oh, that's wonderful. Great. Well, that's cool. I did have one final question I'm going to ask you. Um, I've always been curious about this myself. I think I've watched just about every episode of air disasters on Smithsonian, which is weird. I know. Um, maybe I don't know why I never watched those shows. Oh, I've watched every episode and I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to end this on a down note and it's not, I just was curious. Um, I've always wondered, like, you know, what goes into flying a plane in terms of because I don't think the flying public really understands all that goes into flying a plane from point A to point B. I was talking to a pilot at one point. I asked him, I said, is flying stressful? And he's like, he's like, it isn't until it is. And so yeah. I was just curious, um, what are some of the greatest challenges? What are some of the like, what are the things that are the most they always say takeoff and landing are are you know, the, that's where, that's where the money's made. But, um, I'm just curious, what's your, what's your take on that? Yeah. You want your landing, the number of landings to equal the number of takeoffs. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah, that would be probably uh, right. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's an important safety tip, but, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like the, the old story about the, uh, the guy who gets hired to fix a complicated piece of machinery, you know, that's yeah. not working. So he walks in and he, and he, okay, so he pulls out a hammer and he taps the thing and it just springs to life. And then he presents the owner with a $10,000 bill. And the owner's irate and says, all you did was just tap it right there with a hammer and you're charging me 10,000 bucks? Yeah. And the guy says, well, I didn't charge you any money for tapping it with the hammer. I charged you money uh, because I knew where to tap it with the hammer yeah. and what the problem was. So that's kind of what flying is. You know, you... You, you do a lot of training. You're ready for all kinds of uh, uh, contingencies and emergencies and stuff like that. And usually none of it ever happens, you know, but when yeah. it does, you got to be ready for it. So when it's not happening, it's it can be a pretty easy job. I mean, you know, everything's, you know, you got autopilots, you got computers, you got a lot of help from people on the ground, air traffic control. Yeah. And uh, that's all great. But, uh, you know, as soon as, as soon as the weather the weather closes in on you, or you know you're you're you know you're going to make a, a landing in a snowstorm, you know where your your risks start going up a little bit, or maybe you have a malfunction, or maybe your computer's not working. Uh, anytime the operation gets irregular, then you know the stress goes up, and that's when you're you're earning your money. And so you know the only way to uh, to, to mitigate those kinds of things is just through lots of training and, and lots of experience. And, and that kind of goes to something that a lot of people probably don't know is how much training is involved. Yeah. Um, airline pilots, uh, in, in addition to having, you know, just basically a, a career lifetime of learning how to fly and, and that kind of thing, you also have to go for periodic check rides uh, at least every 12 months. And so, you know, when you go to the, the training center to get your, your requalification, your check ride, they are going to throw everything at you. You know, you're going to see stuff that you rarely see. You're going to see engine fires. You're going to see single engine landings. You're going to see pressure, pressurization failures. Uh, you know, you name it. That's where you get the emergencies. Okay. And uh, is that in a simulation you do this, or it's in a simulator? But yeah, the yeah. simulators are very real. Very I mean, real. It, yeah. It's it's they they <laughs> it, it definitely is stressful to to go through something like that. But yeah. I think uh, from the flying from from the flying public uh, perspective, uh, that should be a comfort to anyone who flies because you know that the two guys up front. Uh, are never more than 12 months out from, you know, having one of those check rides or hmm. some kind of training. So it's just continual all the time. Plus, in addition to that stuff, uh, there's quarterly training that has to be completed uh, at home, too. So it's it's training, 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 procedures, procedures, procedures all the time. So aside from flying, I also understand that 
Uh, you have a love of cars and music. You built your own hot rod, from what I understand, made your own Be- Beatles album. Uh, let's talk about some of these other interests. Okay, well, yeah, both of the, first of all, it wasn't an album. Uh, okay, I thought it was an album. <laughs> it was all, it was, no, I'll no, stay it was corrected. Only two, it was only two songs. Okay, okay. Uh, but those two, those two things are kind of a, uh, kind of an outgrowth of what I was doing with my two sons yep. uh, as they were growing up. And uh, I'll talk about the music thing first. Uh, my older son was really into music when he was, you know, junior high and high school. He was in school band, marching band, and all that kind of stuff. And and he was good. Uh, he was a saxophone player, and then he also played the bass guitar. And at one point, he actually thought he was going to be a music major or go into the music industry at, at some point. So we wanted to encourage him. So I became the uh, the band booster president. Yep. And uh, and my wife also was in the boosters organization. And we started a family band. And the reason we did that, first of all, because it was fun. Yep. And uh, and I, I did that when I was a kid. I was in garage bands and stuff like that. And I also came up with this, this scheme to uh, advertise the band in the uh, in the programs at the at the music concerts that the high school band would do. And the the idea was that if anyone was having a party, some kind of a cocktail party or something like that, and they wanted background live music, they could hire our band, and we would uh, you know do it all for a donation. Yep. And we would donate the money to the school band program. So. Uh, that was kind of the deal with that. And uh, so we, you know, we, we got pretty good and we got, we got several gigs out of it. And we raised, uh, you know, a couple thousand bucks for the high school band program. And it was great experience. Oh, that's the awesome. kids, you know, my, my younger son was also in the band. He wasn't as into music as Chris was, but he was our drummer. And uh, I played the keyboard and the guitar. And, you know, then the band broke up because everybody went away to college and that was kind of the end of that. But I still, you know, still mess around with it on my own. And Chris, my older son, still play. He did. He didn't become a music major, but he still plays in our church. And that's great. And we occasionally will get together and play sometimes. So that was really me trying to be a you know a student of my kid, and you know trying to help him along the way. And with regard to the car, yeah, we built a hot rod. I've seen it, Mike. Michael, Mike. Oh, you did. You I saw. saw I saw a picture of it. Okay. Yeah. So. It basically is a, it looks kind of like a Hot Wheels, uh, yeah. like a just a hot rod. You know, it's got a, you know, a big motor on a very lightweight frame. And, you know, it's, it's like having, I tell people, it's like having a V8 engine on a go-kart, basically. Okay. Yep. So it's, it's pretty crazy. But it started out as a kit. And uh, my son and I, my younger son and I, started putting the kit together. And then you get to the point where the kit is no longer a kit because there's not really much to the kit. The kit is the body and the frame. And then after that, you know, you're kind of on your own. So you got to figure out what kind of wheels and engine and transmission and all that kind of stuff. So we, we did all that and he just, he just loved it. He's, he's always been mechanically inclined and, and he, he ended up going to school and becoming a mechanical engineer. So that's awesome. You know, he, he says to this day that that's, that's kind of the thing that, that got him along, yeah, uh, that, that took him along that path. That's great. And then I guess yeah. the, 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 the last question is, you, you know, you've, you've flown in the Navy, you've flown for Southwest, you've been in two movies, you've built cars. <laughs> so what, what, do you, what do you want to do when you grow up? <laughs> By the way, in those movies, I think I got paid $70 each. Each. Each oh. pop. So I made $140 in the movie. Gotcha. Uh, so yeah, what do you want to do when you grow up? That's what I want. When to I grow up, okay, yeah. A lot of people ask me that, and yeah. uh, you know, but we started. My wife and I started doing those things before I retired, yep. uh, because I knew that I didn't want to be faced with, uh oh, what do I do? I want to already be doing it. Um, so you know, I I want to I want to play more music. I still like to do that on my own. Yep. Uh, I just had a piano gig recently. Oh, okay, Joe Metamano. That you just you did one of these uh, podcasts for, runs Central Union Mission, and yep. they did a fundraiser, and I played the piano at the fundraiser. Oh, so interesting! Yeah. Anytime one of those kinds of gigs come up, uh, I'll take it. Um, I want to play more golf. I want to get good at that, and uh, I'm getting stiff in my old age, so I want to do yoga because it's uh, good for you. Know, I can, I'm starting to feel starting to feel my age, and I'm a grandpa now, so we have two grandkids. They live close by. We actually watch our 
grandkids uh, two days a week. Congratulations. To help out. Thank you. That's awesome. But um, I'm also, you know, I'm also looking at our our life as our lives. I speak of my wife, Dee Dee, and I together on this uh, as kind of an hourglass, you know, and we don't know how much time we have left. So yeah. Uh, we're we're pretty pretty serious about our faith, and and the Bible, you know, tells us. It says uh, in Psalm ninety uh, twelve, it says, "Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom." And so that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to spend our last days, however long that is, with that in mind. Yeah. Uh, when when I did the uh, when we did the retirement uh, cruise that I described earlier, uh, I did a I did a speech uh, after dinner on that cruise. And one of the things I talked about was something that had been in the news uh, fairly recently. It was a story of a guy by the name of Lawrence Brooks, who was a black man and served in the segregated U.S. Army during World War II in uh, New Guinea and the Philippines. And he had just died the previous month. So I retired in February. So on January 5th, he had passed away. He was 112 years old when he wow. passed away. Wow. And at that point, he was the oldest uh, living World War II vet. And people would often ask him, to what do you attribute your long life? And his answer was always the same. He says, I attribute my long life to serving God and being nice to people. Yeah. And I said, you know, I think those are words to live by. I, yeah, I, I, uh, I, love I really, re- that, that resonated with me. So, I mean, so living out our faith with whatever sure. time God has given us, that's what we're doing. Yeah. And we volunteer at our church with the young singles group. We, we mentor younger people. And, uh, you know, we're, I'm discipling two guys right now, two younger guys. We lead a Bible study out of our home. So, you know, that's kind of where we, you know, we want to head with our lives at this point. Yeah, that sounds great. Well, those, sounds like, those sound like all the right priorities, all the right things. So that's great. Uh, Buzz, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. I'm Steve Burke, and we'll see you next time on Coffee with Closers. A, B, C. A, always B, B, C, closing. Always be closing. Always be closing. We're the Pinkston team. And this has been Coffee with Closers. Be sure to subscribe for more episodes and follow us on Twitter, TikTok, and LinkedIn. Catch us next time. We know you're not busy.